Good evening. It is August the 24th, 2016, and you are live with the EdTech Situation Room broadcasting worldwide for an audience of only a few live viewers, but probably thousands of asynchronous viewers that will tune in later. I am Wes Fryer, your host tonight, and I am the Director of Technology at Cassidy School, where it is the silly season of the start of school with lots of tech requests, but... I'm excited to be joined tonight, as always, with by Jason Neifer, my co-host. And Jason, I'm sure things in Montana are just extremely calm this time of year for all IT support people. They are. Um, are we haven't quite got the support tickets that we expect here in, in a week or so um, from at least uh, uh, students that we serve. But uh, teachers have been, um, you know, letting us know that they're back and starting to work their way into their digital classrooms and. Um, I'm sure the next two weeks will present us with extraordinary opportunities to multitask and otherwise, um, you know, uh, be an evolved computer user. So I'm joining uh, you tonight from fabulous Missoula, Montana, um, where we are starting to get a little bit of the typical August fire smoke. The air was a little chewy this morning, although not as bad as a year ago, as Facebook reminded me this morning um, by sharing with me photos of this time last year when it was uh, you know, pea soup smoky outside, but, um, I'm excited to be here tonight. Um, and, uh, lots of interesting news to talk about, um, in the educational technology sphere. Um, so want to get started, Wes? Absolutely. I'll just uh, tell everybody if you're, if you're new to us, you can find all the links that we'll be discussing at edtechsr.com slash links. We have been using, and I think it's been working really well. This is our 20th episode, a Google doc, and we generally don't get through all of the links, but we basically are trying to talk about technology news with an educational lens. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in right away actually with something not from the week, but definitely the best article I have read in a long time. And it's called, if you're not paranoid, you're crazy. And it's by Walter Kern. He wrote this in the Atlantic in November of 2015. I think that I was probably directed to this by the amazing and, and probably best advice, uh, that, Jason has given yet on the podcast, Note to Self podcast, um, which is just full of, of great resources and links. And, <laughs> oh my gosh, I, the, the quick story is, you know, our phones are listening to us and, and you need to probably, I mean, it's a good idea to go to your privacy settings for your smartphone, take a look at the apps that you have allowed access to the microphone. Ask yourself, does Facebook really need access to my microphone? And in the, in the article, Kern talks about, you know, we, we hope that it's going, we're going to have benevolent overlords and the information that's being collected about us and that we are freely giving away is just going to, you know, haha, here's an ad for, you know, a new lawnmower because I just searched for lawnmower on Google. But there's a lot of weird things that can happen and in the, I am noticing these things more, and in the course of reading the article over a period of days, because it is a long article, uh, my quick little story, like he talks about a walnut moment, was I had some Cheetos that I bought. We don't usually get a lot of chips, but I had some. I have this app called Pacer, which I am supposed to be religiously documenting my food and my exercise and my water. And literally shortly after I was enjoying some Cheetos, I got this text message that says, are you binge eating? Make sure you don't keep tempting foods nearby. And sure enough, um, not only Pacer, but, you know, Facebook and Amazon have access to the microphone. I don't know. It It is a great article. It, it makes me think more about privacy. Uh, I am an enthusiast for technology and... You know, I'm a, I'm an advocate for using it in powerful and transformative ways to bring new opportunities for learning into our classrooms and into our lives. But at the same time, there is an undeniably dark side to the way that we are living in a surveillance age. And part of the educational lens is for all of us to be talking about how much we want to share, what we want to share, and not just blindly sharing, because I think there's a lot of that happening now. So any thoughts, Jason, on the surveillance state and how you are acting 
in re- in response to your your knowledge or your perception of what's going on? Well, I mean, I we, we've 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 danced around this topic a couple times in the past, and, and I do think that that generally speaking, end users need to be way more cognizant of 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 their devices and what they're sharing. Um, I think that that part of the lesson here, actually, for me, at the educational context is twofold. First, we should be having these discussions in classrooms, and I don't think there's definitive advice we can really give. I mean, there's good basic stuff. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the, um, you know, put the sticky note on your, 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 um, webcam crowd. Um, and I know that that, that particular issue was discussed in some depth on the Note to Self podcast. I don't find that to be a particular threat. And maybe it's because I'm a chubby 42 year old guy. And if, you know, you really are looking to score pictures of me topless, I guess go for it. But I would understand if I were, um, you know, in different uh, physical contexts where that would be, you know, a problem. But I, I, but I also think that, um, you know, the, the threats are probably more subtle than people hacking into your webcam. Um, the, uh, the fact that we share a lot of information publicly that we, we maybe shouldn't. And I'm reminded Wes of, of, of you going off of Foursquare, um, a couple years ago. And, but I thought a lot about that and, um, I almost immediately stopped using Foursquare myself a couple of days later. Part of it was because I, I didn't know what I was getting out of it, to be honest. But the other piece of it is, is that, you know, I do perceive that that may be sharing at a higher level than I'm necessarily comfortable with. Um, the other one I think about is people are the, the, the somewhat, uh, uh, um, promiscuous crowd that, 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 uh, goes and robs houses, um, based on Facebook posts, right? I'm leaving town for two weeks and I'm going on vacation to Europe for two weeks and da, 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 da. And we voluntarily give so much information that ignoring what, what the, the, the kind of nefarious means of, of phones and tablets and laptops are doing, we have to make sure to make that cognizant to our students. And so I think these are important discussions. That article would be, would be an excellent one to share on day one of, of a classroom environment to spark interesting and deep discussions. Um, something I, I actually kind of miss about, uh, uh, kind of miss. I miss a ton of things about being out of the classroom. One of the prominent things I miss is that, you know, I, I, you start to get an eye for things that you think would play well in a classroom environment. That article was a fabulous example of something I think would play extremely well in a classroom environment. And so, you know, the opportunities that you can give your students to discuss these issues, have them think about their devices and what context they're using them in, it's an extremely um, important topic. Um, I would add one other thing to think about, and there's actually an excellent Note to Self podcast about this too. Um, we obligate our students quite a bit in a lot of classroom contexts to sign up for services that are provided to the end user to create or to uh, research or to aggregate information. And I have only in the last two or three years really started thinking about what, what, what is the implication of those things, right? Um, I do uh, a couple of presentations at conferences and trainings for schools about the privacy issue. Um, the most often, um, uh, cited groups that, that do have, uh, or they have a perception of privacy problems is Google and Facebook. To be honest, I'm less concerned about those companies, uh, because I feel like they have clear privacy policies and both of them do bend over backwards to help you set your privacy settings or check what they're collecting on you. But that all said, when you go sign up for Classroom Dojo and you're sharing um, actually fairly sensitive information about student conduct, right, or about student behavior and performance, what what is the implication of that? Um, if you're signing up for um, a graphics program that uh, you're having students, uh, you know, create or paint on there and students are sharing personal information to get access to that tool – where is that information going? And um, I, I heard actually a couple of years ago of a school district, and I want to say it's Denver, and I could be wrong about this, but that's come up with a vetted set of tools that they're comfortable with from a privacy standpoint to say that we're going to limit to these tools that have been vetted by a district. But, um, you know, at the risk of sounding paranoid, um, the, you know, as a classroom teacher, you are exposing your students to privacy threats if you're having to sign up for X, Y, and Z. And, you know, there's lots of ways around that. You create teacher accounts. You can have students lie on those forms, although 
That creates its own problems because oftentimes it's a violation of terms of service, um, which, uh, you know, uh, having a, a classroom have students sign up and violate the terms of service, a commercially available product, seems like it also is open to, to, to scrutiny and criticism. But, you know, those are all things that are kind of swimming around these topics, and unfortunately we just don't have clear answers to them. So I think if you can talk about this as a teacher with your students, it's important. You should talk about it with your colleagues. And um, at risk of, you know, maybe kicking up some dust that you don't know what to do with, bringing in your administrator and your technology staff in for these conversations, I think is extremely important. I got, I got to tell a fast story and then we'll go to, to, to your first article. Uh, let's flash back to 1998, 99. I am at Rush Elementary School in Lubbock, Texas. I am a computer technology teacher and facilitator. So half the time I get to work with teachers with integrated lessons and then half the time I've got kids, you know, in my, in my room teaching them by myself, whatever, you know, basically kind of whatever curriculum we want because it's pretty, pretty open. Keyboarding is like the only requirement to, to get to. So I end up actually, and I cringe at this, and I, hopefully I can't be, you know, uh, held liable for, for something. And, and nothing terrible happened, but I helped all my kids set up their own Yahoo accounts. And this was in like 98, 99. And if I think now about all the bad things that can happen, I mean, we are help, we are setting up, you know, Google accounts for our, our lower division grades one through four students, elementary kids this year. It's going to be internal only. And we've got, you know, some gaggle safety monitoring that we're paying for. Um, boy, so naive and, and nothing bad happened. And it was, I mean, it was opening up a new world of possibilities and there were lots of good conversations that we had, but, Gosh, in those early days of the web, as things mature, um, you know, and we become more aware of stuff. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things that I cringe to think about. I'm glad. I mean, I, I'm, I can picture and I know the names of some of those students and I'm sure that they remember, you know, opening up the world of email. But anyway, that probably wasn't, not probably, that was not, not a smart thing to do. Um, I would not do the same thing today. Yep. And in fact, I did something similar too. I had kids setting up Gmail accounts in 2010 and 11 because there was no district email accounts. And, um, you know, I wanted to use the tools. I thought Google Docs was super awesome and it was the right decision to do. And in retrospect, I would go back and tell Jason to, to stop being an idiot. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, the liability piece is I, I get a little tired of because I think that, um, you know, there's, there's overprotection, you know, and, and we have to let kids experiment a little bit, but, uh, it's an important issue and the privacy thing is, is, is just the, just the start of it. So I, extremely, extremely important topic. All right. Where do you want to take us next? Well, uh, an interesting, um, article today in, um, uh, I, I forgot the name of the site, uh, Recode, uh, mm-hmm. reports today that, um, there is a study released um, about uh, screens accessing streaming services. And as it turns out, mobile devices are starting to become the most popular way to access streaming services. And part of the point that the Recode article is making um, is that um, personal devices, small personal devices are starting to become the default way to consume um, even traditional media like Netflix or Hulu or services that are pay for services. And I'm sure if they went into uh, more detail or if uh, they started doing a, a little micro analysis, that part of this is also the shift to TV that's outside the more traditional realm. But still, I think it's a, a, a an interesting piece of this process. And now the, the other data points they pointed to 30% of internet data usage at home comes from phones and tablets, which means we are moving away from desktops, laptops, even smart televisions, and instead working more towards personalized devices. And, um, you know, I, uh, we talk disruption a lot on this, on, on this particular podcast. It's an important topic for schools, but it really does in the same way that, uh, the cheap laptops 10, 12 years ago were starting to make it into students' backpacks. And then quickly the tablet in 2010, 11, 12 started replacing for that. We need to be thinking about how is it that the tools we use work on phones and tablets? Uh, how is it that students can learn on those devices? And, and I'll be fully frank, our, my organization doesn't even officially support phones or tablets 
um, as a learning device. A lot of our students attempt, and, and I'll be honest, the, the reason why is document management. It has little to do with the screen size and more to do with, you know, students are somewhat befuddled by how you would create a Word document on, on phones and tablets. But um, it's it's an extremely important piece of, of, of the puzzle here. And um, I think it calls into the question the future of huge screens. I think it calls into question the future of streaming boxes, um, it, you know, is it important for us to have a big screen in a classroom? Obviously we're not there yet, but we're close. And as these numbers increase, um, it, it's certainly going to challenge the way we consume media. I've got a fast story to share that's related that happened two weeks ago. So, uh, Tommy Snyder, shout out to him is on our tech team. He's the debate coach actually for our school and sec- in the second year of teaching, uh, came from the University of Oklahoma and he's half time with our IT staff, uh, doing tech support. And he's a Windows phone guy, which not a lot of those around. And I am probably the last person on well, maybe not the planet, but certainly in my neighborhood, who's gonna who's gonna stand up and say, "Wow, Microsoft!" Um, I've just you know had lots of negative experiences. I think whatever you have, use it well. And I'm not telling anybody to to throw away a device, but this was amazing. He is able on his Windows phone to plug it into his monitor and his keyboard and mouse and have a full blown Windows system. Not a mobile operating system, not, you know, something that's underpowered. We're talking full-blown Windows 10 that is totally running off of his phone. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Now, a little bit later, I think this was this week, there was something happened with his phone, and he didn't get text messages, and it was some kind of some kind of wonky thing, and I teased him about he needs to get an iPhone. But that seriously was the most impressive mobile phone you know, sort of thinking about it being a replacement that, that I've seen. Because if that, if that's a glimpse of the future and we are, we've talked about Microsoft, you know, pressing the boundaries of innovation and really trying to reinvent themselves, et cetera. If that's a glimpse of the future, I mean, I, I loaned my Chromebook, uh, our personal Chromebook to a friend. So I don't have a second screen here. So I've got our links and yeah, I'm consuming it here. This is probably the main device at home, even though I've got an iPad that I'm using. So, you know, if this device can can go to work with me and I plug it into a screen and a keyboard and a mouse. Yeah. I'm we're glimpsing the future there. And you know, it's it it challenges me as an IT director thinking about devices that we're going to be purchasing and replacing. It's been an assumption that yeah, you had a MacBook Pro and now it's five years later and you need another MacBook Pro. I don't know. You know, is it gonna is it gonna be the tablet? I'm not saying it's gonna be the phone, but as these computational, as the computational power of these devices increases, it pushes the boundary of saying, what do you need in order to do your work? And certainly when yep. it comes for, to consuming, you know, everything I need to consume is here. Everything I need to produce and share and create, not here yet. Lots of it is, but, but not everything. Yep. And by the way, um, there are, there are Android versions of, of, of the Windows phone thing. There's a, something called the Superbook. Um, which is a $99, it's kind of like a laptop shell for Android phones. Uh, there's a couple Kickstarter projects right now are aiming to do the same thing. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's really interesting what direction, uh, that's going into. And, um, you know, I, in fact, that would be the answer to my criticism of using phones in context sometimes of more productive apps is that if you can get to a larger screen or can figure out the document management, that's probably going to be a better option than, you know, kind of trying to kick it entirely on your phone. And the thing I keep going back to is that even if it's a really low function, you know, prepaid Android phone, these are still sitting in our seventh and eighth graders backpacks on the way to and from school. And harnessing that is important and and really powerful, even if you're just a voice on a recording even if you're a simple activity or even reference to an app, there's a way to engage that. And there's lots of great uh, examples of that in schools. I still don't think I've seen yet a wide implementation of that in a way that, you know, another school could say, that's how to do it. And that's how to get the change you're looking for. Not that there's schools that aren't doing pretty amazing things, um, you know, with uh, smaller mobile devices, but it's coming and it's uh it's 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 definitely going to impact the way we engage with information definitely and i would actually and as a last note on that one i'd say seesaw is the most transformative app for sharing 
media content that I've seen on a mobile device that I, I used in the iPad media camps this summer. Uh, my wife's used for two years. We had teachers use last year and that ability to readily not only access content that the teacher's sharing, but be able to create your own content, share it, comment on it, have a very vibrant, interactive community. Um, yeah, that just really pushes the boundary. So I'm going to jump down to a top, uh, an article about open content. Um, this was from Popular Mechanics on August 21st. NASA just made all its research free online. And that doesn't include certain things with patents and, and, you know, there's, there are some, and, uh, and well, there's probably classified stuff that they didn't release either, but yay, kudos to NASA, kudos to our government in promoting open content. I was, I was thinking about this for some reason tonight about disappointments that I've had in the Obama administration from an educational policy standpoint, but there have been some things they've done well. I think celebrating White House fellows and celebrating innovators has been a good thing. I think the focus that they've had on open content is really good. There's a lot of educators out there today, probably a lot of tech directors and certainly, you know, superintendents and heads of school and, and uh, just administ and board members that do not understand how hugely important open content is, how we should be leveraging it in, in multiple, you know, grade levels. And there's a lot of, of important work that we can do, I think, in sharing open content with other teachers, uh, and, and also contributing to it. Unless we're rudely interrupted by YouTube. That's so, so we've just had our first unexplained disconnection. This is part two of Episode 20 of the EdTech Situation Room just talked about a NASA article for open content. Jason, your views on open content and NASA's leadership. Well, I'm glad to see that particularly research uh, organizations are doing this. One of the things that I, I think is is absolutely critical, and I've seen a lot of a lot of press around this, so it, it's not a it's not a new opinion. But if the government's funding the research, it should be open. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line for me. And uh, there is a lot of money that goes into research universities. Uh, I don't mind that there's technology transfer and those turn into businesses, and and I think that's an important part of the research process beginning to end. But if if the people are funding it. Then that should be open content and not not in any way draw draw profit and um, I'm sorry not in any way draw profit with a closed system regarding research and so uh, yeah and I I'm I'm glad to see this particularly happening um, I think that that kind of leadership will become more and more important as um, you know I I don't think it's too nerdy or scientifically future looking to say. Um, um, you know, at some point, NASA is going to be important for more than just out there exploration, perhaps communication, transportation in the future. They will become the critical agency for. So I think it's a great movement. Have you run into any paywall issues with your research or, or through the university links and stuff? Are you all good for everything you want to get for your dissertation? Um, I, uh, the University of Montana subscribes to a substantial number of uh, research databases. And so I've not run into an issue except for one article that I was not able to find um, a digital copy of. And so I end up ordering that. So this is an interesting story and ordering the book that it's in. Um, and it's one of those kind of research guides uh, um, that has several uh, studies or journal articles and the book showed up and it was, you know, two inches thick and uh, actually sent me down some actually very fruitful rabbit holes related to my dissertation research. But um you know, it, it was frustrating because it was a good article and, um, I, you know, have run into that only occasionally, but, um, it's, it certainly is a, if there was important research behind a paywall or something that was only available, um, in, uh, uh, pay for print edition, I'd have to do it. So that's part of, of being a comprehensive researcher is knowing what's out there, but it would certainly be frustrating. When I was, uh, you know, stringing out my, my own dissertation as long as I possibly could for some weird reason, I didn't have the logins because I wasn't paying the university. Maybe I did, but anyway, there was, there was a time where, where I wasn't as, um, you know, freely able to get, to get stuff. So there's, it, it, it's frustrating. So that, and we're, we're definitely living in times where as a researcher and as a publisher, 
we have some choices about journals that we submit to and possibly some choice, depending on which journal that is, you know, what, what rights we're going to retain. For instance, if we're going to retain the right to publish our own articles on our own website, you know, in addition to, to where they are. And I've been very disappointed by certain technology uh, organizations that, you know, have, I think made a pretty big point of saying, Hey, this paywall and this archive is the main way that we're making money. And it just, um, I don't think that's the right Mardi Gras float to be on, uh, when it comes to, uh, just information. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, the people probably among many who's very inspired with every time I hear Jimmy Wales say, you know, provide our goal is to provide access to, you know, the world's information. He, he says it more eloquently than that, uh, but op- open access to, to so much information and, and and again, for schools, this should make a difference, right? We do have have access to a whole lot, but we've got a long way to go when it comes to the ivory tower and academia. And um, we see see some folks pushing the boundaries with with open journals and things like that. But in general, I think we see a lot of stasis and and status quo uh, when it comes to academic publishing. Maybe not. I'm not Absolutely. as in, I'm not as into that as, as you are. So, all right, what's next? Uh, let's see. I'll share an article about something that I am quite sad about. Um, Engadget and a number of other technologies, technology sources reported on August 19th that Google plans on phasing out Chrome apps on the Windows and Mac platform. And also, uh, I know this from another article, uh, Linux uh, uh, operating systems will no longer have Chrome apps. And um, I, it's funny because I read this article and... Um, it said that that Google's argument for getting rid of this was that uh, very few people actually utilize um, this as a platform, so it's probably uh, smart for me to describe what that is. Uh, right now, um, if you utilize the Chrome browser, you can download what, what are called Chrome apps, and Chrome apps are programs that run through your browser but actually have an icon and you can put them in your icon tray. You can utilize them like you would an app on on your computer. And in fact, you can run them without even have the Chrome browser running. And I utilize that. Uh, There are six or seven Chrome apps that I fairly frequently use. And what I like about it is that I can, you know, sign into my Chrome account on a Chrome browser and get access to these six or seven apps without having to go to, um, you know, a website to install them. And I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a great system um, uh, uh, or system statistic, um, uh, a Chrome app called System that allows me to see what the CPU is, how much RAM there is, what the resolution of the screen is. Um, that's information that's not necessarily readily available on all machines. I can simply sign into a, a Chrome browser and then uh, get access to that. Um, if you've ever used a Logitech Unified Receiver, this is an example of one uh, for those of you that are watching this on video. Uh, this allows you to hook up multiple Logitech devices to a single USB hub, and there's a, a an applet you can download that helps program these little receivers. And so, and you can download for Windows or Mac, and there's a beautiful Chrome app that allows you to do that from scratch. Uh, you don't have to install it at all. It's just, it just in your Chrome browser. You click on it, and you're good to go. And my favorite plain text editor, which is oddly enough called Text, um, is a Chrome app. And so even though Chrome apps will still be available on the Chrome OS system, which it kind of has to be because they've kind of built this notion off of web apps being the core of the Chrome experience, those same apps will lo- no longer be available um, on your desktop computer. So I guess two points to this. One, there is some personal sadness to this n- note because it's, I, I like this, this system. I thought it was brilliant. It allowed me to install, you know, a half dozen or so applications that I use frequently on every machine with, uh, you know, literally just logging into my Chrome system. Um, but secondarily, it goes back to a point we've made at least a half dozen times on this show you can't rely on free as a long-term strategy as an end user. So, uh, you know, if I were a tech director and I had uh, found a Chrome app, there's a couple of wonderful integrated development environments or IDEs that maybe you were utilizing in programming classes or, or something along those lines. And, uh, you know, it was easier, easier, probably a lot easier than installing software from scratch or just pushing out via, you know, like a Google Apps for Education Chrome browser uh, piece. That's not going to be available at some point in the future. So, um, you know, 
It, uh, it, I read maybe that less than 1% of users were utilizing that feature. Um, so I guess maybe the other notion tonight is I am the 1%. Um, but, uh, in many ways, not just yeah, this, probably. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, and, but at the same time, like that, that has to be millions of users, right? But that's, you know, for a big company like Google, it's not enough to maintain, apparently. So, uh, a sadness, uh, is wafted across my laptops. So consider please, uh, sharing a geek of the week, maybe down the road about more of that Logitech stuff, cause that's, that's pretty cool. I tracked with that a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not fully, uh, fully comprehending all that you're doing. I'm, it's so interesting to see what Google is doing and how they're moving in the marketplace. A week or two ago, we, we'd shared the article about, how the Android apps are coming to many Chromebooks, not all Chromebooks, but many of them. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but I find myself trying to touch the screen of my regular MacBook laptop because I want to, you know, and I've done this with the television too. Like, oh yeah, I can't swipe it or, you know, I can't just touch it. Uh, so um, it's interesting to see how Google's positioning itself, how Chrome fits into that you know, and web apps. Um, another thing that would be a good topic probably is the difference between extensions, you know, add-ons, apps. And I think I've heard people at a Google Summit, you know, talk about that. And I know we could Google it and find out. But anyway, that's something I'm not completely clear on. I do know that the extensibility of our browsers is incredibly important. I was helping our elementary music teacher today with her new Apple TV and her iPad, and I was cringing when we were on the YouTube app for iOS because we couldn't stop the ads. But, you know, we were back on her computer. I was helping her build her first playlist on YouTube, which is very exciting. And we installed the Uver, the what's it called, uBlock Origin extension, which is a great ad blocker. And... Anyway, um, extensibility is huge. And so I, I, you know, I, I don't know that I'm fully understanding why Google is phasing it out, but I guess that makes sense if there's, if there's just a, not a lot of people, you know, using that and there's other ways to get the functionality. So. Yep. And, you know, and, and it, it goes back to, um, you know, Google's a company that makes money. And so if they're investing in a technology and it's not getting wide usage, it, it makes no sense. Um, you could, could relate that to, I think we had pushed this article into this week as well. Um, you know, Chromebooks are starting to get more cachet. Um, in fact, I read a great article two weeks ago from, um, like on CNET that basically said that don't, uh, if you, if you're going back to school right now, don't buy a laptop. Instead, wait until the new Chromebooks are out that have guaranteed access to the Play Store. So you can run Android apps. Is that will revolutionize your your computing experience and your Chromebook experience, and maybe with Chromebooks moving in that direction, apps don't make sense anymore because you can download actual Android apps from the Google Play Store, yep. which makes it a you know big difference. So uh, that that is uh, also uh, starting to fire up quite a bit as well. So I'm gonna. Uh take us to a actual video rather than an article. Uh, this one was from The Verge. I guess they had it in an article on my birthday on August 20th. Uh, celebrated a birthday this last week. Uh, the space station gets a new parking spot. And, man, this is so huge in terms of the commercialization of space. And a, a friend of mine, Gail Lovely's husband, who just retired from NASA last fall, actually was one of the main engineers down in Houston working on this. And this is um, is the portal, the door, the hatch, the connector that allows for SpaceX and Boeing and potentially other commercial companies to go up to the ISS, to the International Space Station, and be able to dock. And this video explains that currently there really isn't docking. What there is is, you know, getting in close and then the astronauts on the ISS taking the arm and then pulling you in and then, you know, coupling you with the station. This this um, This new docking system has been set up to theoretically allow for an unsupervised docking. So if something happened or whatever, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to have the arm and some astronaut on the ISS, you know, pulling people in. They'd be able to come up, dock. Um, one of these actually blew up on 
it wasn't the, I don't know if it was the Falcon 9, which Falcon rocket it was that, that, um, SpaceX had, had set up. So this, they've, they've got it up there successfully now. They have one. They want to go ahead and have a second one. So they have a backup. And I just think it's incredibly exciting. And I've said this before in my passion and enthusiasm for STEM and, and teaching STEM, um, the, you know, the, the, in what, 2013 to 2015, uh, back in the classroom really will shine through because one of my favorite things each week became curiosity links. And these were things to share with students. I tried to do no more than 10 minutes. A lot of times it was a video, but it was to spark some curiosity and some excitement. And amidst all the news that's happening, you know, probably a lot of people have missed some huge headlines with space, like China landed on the moon with robotically, not with people, but they did that a couple years ago. And we just sent the Orion capsule, uh, like a year ago, December, you know, into high earth orbit, which was the first time we done that i think since the apollo missions and you know spacex is now you know working to get us to mars i mean my son is now is his first week of school at Colorado school of mines where they have you know folks studying space mining and the u.s government has changed the law so that now companies that are u.s based that find stuff on asteroids or on other planets can keep it you know if you saw avatar Part of that is coming true where we have commercial companies that are going to be trying to mine things that are very plentiful out in the solar system, but maybe scarce here, whether that's helium three on the moon or, or other kinds of things. So this is an exciting development. It's something to share with kids. We cannot underestimate how important it is to help get kids excited about science, about exploration, about engineering, about all of those kinds of fields. And I was just, Loving this, and it's it's a nice four minute video that is kind of a a, a news style, and and they've got some explan- explanations about what's going on, as well as interviews and great video. So awesome to check out. Great, thanks, Wes. Um, let's see. Actually, we, this is one from last week too that I kind of want to talk about for a moment. Um, uh, Yahoo was sold um, several weeks ago. Um, and that's been its own story because uh, uh, it was taken over um, uh, a couple years ago by a former Facebook executive or Google executive, Facebook, Google. Former Meyer. Yeah. Google, yeah. Yeah, right. Google executive. And, um, you know, they've been trying to kind of become relevant again, and it didn't necessarily work out. And um, the company that eventually bought them um, was Verizon. And... The reason why, in my mind, that's interesting is because they have bought a number of um, properties in the past couple of years and now own um, a lot of content properties, which they did not before. And now suddenly they own um, uh, what used to be the hottest tech property in the world, which is Yahoo. And so what's interesting about that is, in my mind, is that, um, you know, uh, we're still trying to figure out what new media looks like in 2016 as it relates to consolidation, the internet was supposed to be the great, you know, um, the great, uh, equalizer of, um, you know, at, at media companies. And, um, as, as, uh, time has gone on, um, you know, traditional media properties have started snapping up web properties as a means of, of having control over multiple parts of the, the, the kind of publishing universe. But, um, the fact that uh, you know, core technology companies, yeah, or Verizon's not a content company, um, and yet they now own one of the oldest, uh, oldest standing web content companies on Earth is uh, an important uh, development and something we should keep um, our eyes on. Um, Wes, do you, do you use Yahoo anymore? Is that still relevant to you at all? Gosh, I mean, I still have my Yahoo account, uh, from f- the standpoint of Flickr. I mean, I've got, yeah. I've got, I've got two-step authentication on my account. I, we have a person we know in our church who's been hacked like four times on our Yahoo account. And it's just like, oh, um, I, I don't know what they're doing with security these days. I, I abandoned that account a number of years ago. I still probably have a few websites and things that are connected to it. Um, but it's not that relevant in my world today. I, I do think that article, though, is fascinating because 
we're, you know, they've said to, st- to shareholders, they're trying to become a digital media company. They see all of these mobile screens back to article one from this show, all these mobile screens as a huge opportunity for delivering content and advertising and, you know, being able to, to monetize. What's all, I think this article talks about also the decline in, in bandwidth. And I'll note, I've got to cancel. I've had a Verizon hotspot for probably five years. And I've, I, the whole time I've been paying 50 bucks for five gigs of data. That price has not gone down, but part, but I've, we've moved as a family to T-Mobile, you know, and, and dumped AT&T because there's so much more bandwidth that we can get, you know, with a competitor. So companies like Verizon and, and probably we'll see this happen with AT&T and others are seeing plateaus in their cellular revenues and we're actually seeing some decrease in, in prices. And so I think it's a great thing for, um, you know, creativity and the creation of content for the web. Um, the fact that, that they're probably going to be trying to produce independent shows. We have Netflix, we have YouTube, we've got, you know, a lot of different players. Um, I think it's a better day than ever for creatives in terms of not just having major networks and Hollywood in, tr- in the traditional sense, maybe being your, your on ramp to fame or to even just a livelihood. Um, so, you know, I, I, people are tired of Wes, you know, I don't know what the right word, way to say this is, but you know, just, Hoping that that Flickr doesn't go away, but you know, yeah. like, we've heard you say just about every time, don't rely on free tools, and they have charged and monetized in some ways. But yep, that, that's unfortunately going to probably be a part of the future. Is we're gonna we're gonna hear about Verizon saying Verizon dumps Flickr. I mean, that'll be a horrible day. I will fly a black flag on my Twitter account when that happens. <laughs> uh, one other note, and I I, I did not call this um, until um, I kind of tossed it back to you. The other the other major media company that uh, Verizon bought was AOL. Also, at one point, a hot property as the main conduit of, of getting people online and then pivoted, um, well, tried to pivot a couple of times um, and then finally successfully pivoted into becoming a media company as they started buying up uh, undervalued web properties. And now they own an impressive number of, of blogs and other traditional media, or I'm sorry, uh, new media companies that are, are publishing. And so, you know, Yahoo is going to, or I'm sorry, uh, Verizon's going to own a pretty serious part of, you know, kind of the new media web. And, um, you know, I, I guess maybe the, the, the upside of that for me is that it probably means that even more effort's going to go into making that content uh, portable, um, uh, you know, uh, by making sure it works great on small screens, although I don't think that's been that big of an issue for uh, most modern blogs. But it's certainly something to think about. And, you know, uh, consolidation is certainly challenging uh, industries. And they talked about in the article as well how they're merging. These are these two purchases are tied because the AOL technology as far as advertisements and monetizing and then Yahoo having these properties. So maybe that's going to be good for the long-term survival of Flickr. Hopefully they're not going to ruin it if they find ways to send more ads and things like that. But it's a, it's a merger of those two worlds. And if we want to connect our articles and connect the dots, it's back to, you know, if you're not paranoid you're crazy as far as privacy you know a huge part of this brave new age that we're in is is big data is you know companies being able to harvest information and utilize it to sell to advertisers um we are the product for most of the free web services and then even some that we pay for and um there are careers that are being built and made and that will be built and made in this world of, you know, web, web advertising, data analytics, coding, you know, all of these things that, that go hand in hand with these companies and these kinds of announcements. So where's the STEM club at your school? Where's, you know, where's the computer <laughs> science? Are you making computer science cool? You know, is it cool to be a geek at your, at your school? It should be, you know, we should really be celebrating kids that have, you know, aptitudes and skills. I didn't drop the article in this week, but there were a couple more articles, of course, about hacks. You know, we had the yep. Democratic National Committee or the DNC get hacked supposedly by Russians. And then the FBI, I think there was an article about them being hacked and, you know, it's just 
we, we got to have a, a we got to raise up a generation of 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 uh, individuals that are going to have great tech skills and are going to be white hats to use their skills for good and not for evil to protect us from all these all these nefarious and malicious things that people would like to do to us. Okay, well, I think it's we're nearing the top of the hour, so I would suggest maybe we do our Geeks of the Week. Uh, Wes, why don't you start us off on a product, uh, or at least a brand name that I love personally. Go ahead. Absolutely. My Geek of the Week is the Anchor Bluetooth Folio Keyboard Case for iPad Air 2. Uh, had an opportunity this summer, and as we've kicked off school, to order a few more iPads for faculty. Um, we have our English department, seven faculty, that used a a really cool app called Harkness, which I hadn't heard of before. It's a discussion app that's based on a pedagogy of, of mapping the discussion that's happening in the room. So you identify, you know, who's being quiet or who's dominating, et cetera. But of course, having an iPad, there's all kinds of other things besides just this Harkness app that they can do. And so I was looking for a good Bluetooth case and keyboard that would be reasonably affordable. We've been paying 30 to $40 per case. And this uh, case is 36 bucks. It's been very well received. Um, they, it says in the last six months, if you use it two hours a day, I'm sure they're using it a lot more than two hours a day, but, it, but it has a long charge and anchor is a company. I don't know if I heard about it from you or someone else, but you know, we have our, our chargers in the car from anchor. They're, um, you know, smart in terms of knowing if you've got an iPad or that has a higher amperage need or a phone yep. uh, we've got a you know multi charging station in our kitchen that that's anchor so great case if you're looking for uh, something and i i still honestly think for schools the ipad 2 is a great purchase we have not purchased yeah. any pros yet you can't use the pencil that's apple stylus but there's lots of of really good styluses the adonit jot pro is my my favorite for sketch noting so anyway, if you're looking for it, I think iPad 2, but go 64 gig, don't go 16 gig, and go for that $36 case. It's working great for our teachers, and I'm probably going to be ordering more when I have a chance to order more teacher iPad cases. Great, and I would uh, give another shout-out to the Anchor brand name. Go to Amazon, look for Anchor equipment. I've never gone wrong buying cables and chargers, and I have a Bluetooth speaker um, that I picked up from Anchor, and um, it's it's cheap enough to you know it, to not worry about it if it you know uh, ends up uh, breaking on you or, or getting lifted or whatnot, but still high quality enough to be able to rely on as a day to day device. And that's been one of the great things about there's about a half dozen uh, peripheral companies um, that make you know chargers and cables and. Uh, chargers and cables and Bluetooth speakers, and then uh, we'll oftentimes move out into things like like uh, a phone and, and tablet cases. And it's really uh, increased the quality and brought down the price, I think, of that on Amazon. So I'd like to share with you this week, um, I've mentioned this earlier on, but I've now published my longer article um, on the uh, Tech Savvy Teacher blog on Cloud Ready. Um, so I would refer you to blog.ncc.org, which is uh, where I uh, – publish um, a blog post related to um, educational technology, but the, uh, it's, it's a pretty extensive post, but basically Cloud Ready, for those of you that don't know about it, is a, a, Chrome, a Chromium OS uh, uh, install that allows you to turn a laptop into a Chromebook-like device, and, and their brand name for that is Cloud Ready. And I've mentioned this in some detail before, so that's uh, 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 I won't go into it in great detail here because the blog uh, post does a pretty good job at it. But um, I did this summer as part of an experiment, um, kind of uh, uh, search around eBay, and I picked up two laptops, one for about fifty bucks and one for seventy bucks. Um, I dropped in an SSD drive in both that would have cost, uh, used 15, 20 bucks, uh, new, uh, larger one new would have been only $30. So we're talking about both of those devices being $100 or less and using cloud ready. I turned them both into wonderful, fast, responsive Chrome devices. And in fact, the, the smaller one, it's a little 12 inch Lenovo, a six year old 12 inch Lenovo, first generation i5 processor, a netbook or netbook or ultrabook or whatever you want to call it, a six year old tiny laptop. And it's better than, than, um, the commercial Chrome devices that, um, um, I've used or reviewed or purchased and it's fast and responsive and amazing. And so, uh, uh, I would, you can do some advanced things and dual boot with windows and yada, yada, yada. But my advice would be to find an older laptop, 
Um, you know, pull pull the hard drive, throw an SSD drive in if you've got the tech savvy to do that. Um, if not, buy an old laptop for for fifty bucks and teach yourself that way. Right? It's a good it's a good skill to have, I think, and you could turn that into a fast, responsive Chromebook. So blog.ncc.org um, and uh, enjoy that long post. Awesome. I want to close with a shout out to uh, Marta, who is a librarian in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Uh, she tweeted us with the hashtag EdTechSR on August 17th, saying she just saw episode 19 and said it was always worth your while. So, Marta, thank you. We appreciate the shout out. Uh, we would love for you to share our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Find us online at EdTechSR.com, where we have links to the MP3, the 32 kilobit, relatively small uh, versions of our hour-long shows that you can download to your favorite podcatcher. Um, and you can also access the YouTube versions, which this one may stay in two two parts or, or maybe I'll, I'll combine them and re-upload. So you can find me, Wes Fryer, at WFryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And here in a couple of weeks, I will be starting off a STEAM club with with uh, Megan Thompson, who is our elementary art teacher. Very excited about that. And we'll be sharing from our Cassidy STEM Twitter channel as well. If you do not have enough Twitter things for me and the regular, you know, regular channel. So Jason, you want to take us out and tell us where everyone can find you in addition to your wonderful NCCE blogging. Sure. Um, uh, I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I do post usually 15 to 20 links a week of something that I'm reading that I find interesting. Um, the I will tell you that probably for the next few weeks, I'm looking forward to my Android uh, Nexus 6 phone to get the newest version of the Android operating system, um, Android Nougat, or Android N for those that don't like the name Nougat. Um, but, uh, I will be uh, talking probably a lot about how, how that's impacting my phone. And of course I do blog at, at blog.ncc.org. All right. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do this tonight when I post, I'm going to put a quick little survey. If you have stayed to the bitter end of our episode 20, um, we're just going to do a quick little Google form to find out a little bit about you and, um, anything that you would like to let us know about the show, uh, anything in particular that you would like to hear us talk about more, uh, this show continues to be an experiment and we're talking about possibly maybe joining some networks or at some point, um, who knows, we may, uh, explore advertising or whatever. Um, I don't know. This is, it's fun. I always learn new stuff from Jason and, uh, we appreciate you in any way you can uh, share the show, but, uh, thanks for listening and tune in next week for another round of educational technology news and analysis from Missoula, Montana and Oklahoma city. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room with your hosts Jason and Wes. Remember to subscribe to us on Twitter and Blab, and access episode show notes on edtechsr.com, slash links. Content on the EdTech Situation Room is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Subscribe to our audio podcast feed in your favorite mobile podcatcher app, and check out our archived show videos on YouTube, the EdTech Situation Room where technology news meets educational analysis.